0: Good morning, and glad you're here, and uh, I think you've picked up on this, but this is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, it's actually, we don't really follow the church calendar super closely here, but it's the first uh, Sunday of the new church calendar year that begins with Advent. So uh, we're going to take a break from Romans for this week and the next four weeks, and uh, look at some passages that help us think about what we celebrate at Advent, the, the Incarnation and uh, if you don't know that term, that's just a kind of a formal term for God becoming a man, incarnate. Uh, God becoming man in, uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to be in the Old Testament this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the, um, in the bulletin. But Exodus 34. And, uh, you know, this is not what you would typically think of as a Christmas passage. But we're going to see if we can connect the dots by, by the end of it. Um. A question that has been asked of me before, and I like to throw this question out from time to time, is uh, with whom did Jesus use his harshest words? Uh, sometimes he was very comforting, and sometimes it could be very severe. With whom did Jesus use his most severe words? Uh, was it drunks? Was it um, tax collectors? Swindlers? And if you look in the Gospels, it becomes very apparent, and and they're all on the same page about this, that he actually, he was very honest with those folks, drunks, tax collectors, prostitutes, whatever, very honest with them, but his most severe words was with a whole nother group. Who was it? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. And the reason I bring that up is that the passage we're going to read would have been they would have been completely familiar with this passage i mean any devout jew would know this story would know this passage because it's from the exodus and that was such a huge part of their story and it's from the books of moses and they sort of parked there more than almost any other place but uh, a pharisee really might have this memorized literally know it know the story word for word as it's recorded in exodus and when you look in the Gospels, Jesus makes it apparent that even though you've read this story lots of times, guys, and you know these scriptures, and maybe you know it word for word, you don't understand it. And you know, that's always dangerous that, that, you can, that you can know a story, you can be familiar with it, you, you know how it turns out, you know the characters, and really miss what it means. And I, to, to understand what this passage means is to get a window into what the Incarnation means is all about. So let's read this. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 1. And just for context, this is after the Israelites made the golden calf and worshipped it instead of God. So when you read about Moses going up Sinai with stone tablets, this is the second time he's going back up with a new set because in his anger over the golden calf, He broke the first. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, "'Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain.'" So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've sustained us for another week, and that is no small thing. And thank you for uh, keeping us safe at home and keeping us safe when we were out and about and on the roads. Preserving us in soul and in body and and bringing us back to this point. And Father, if that's no small thing, then how we need your help even to to bless this moment, to bless this time as your word is opened. Um, If there's something in our ears, in our hearts, in our thinking... That would obstruct us hearing you. Then would you would you dig it out and open the way for your word that the King of Glory may come in? And we ask this in Christ's name, Amen. Uh, this is kind of a weird question to throw out to a, a big group of people, but let me throw it out: uh, Have you ever experienced a betrayal? And uh, a betrayal, you know, if you you ever experience it, you'll know this is not just a bad day. And and this is not just hitting a bump in a relationship with somebody. But, I mean, have you ever had um, a point or a moment or an episode where where someone that you had entrusted yourself to, that you had made agreements with, um, that you'd really maybe opened your heart to, just uh, betrayed you? And... um, It's an awful thing. It's an awful thing to go through. And, you know, if you go through it, it, it's going to churn up every bit of you. You may feel that uh, you want vindication, or you may feel like you want what they did to blow blow up back on them, whatever. But you're going to be affected by it. Now, the reason I throw that out is that this text is not going to make a lot of sense if you don't know that it comes on the heels of a massive betrayal. Massive. One of the most infamous episodes, incidents from the history of Israel was that when God had delivered them and rescued them from the Egyptian army and they're in the wilderness and they've won, um, and God has said, you're going to be mine, you're going to be my special people, that they crafted a false god and they worshipped it. And then th- this passage comes on the heels of that. But here's the amazing thing. This passage, on the heels of this massive betrayal, is not about what do you do about betrayal. Uh, It's not about how God retaliated. It's not about how Moses retaliated. It's about the name of God. That's the focus, really, of the passage. So um, I, I had to make an executive decision as I came to this text. Do you go wide or do you go deep? I mean, every word that God says could be its own sermon. But I'm going to go wide because I sort of want you to see where this fits in the big picture of Israel's history. So I'm not going to go as deep as I go wide and we'll see what happens. But thinking in terms of God's name, let's, let's break it up this way. The lead up to the name, the content of the name, and then the bearer of the name. But the lead up to the name, the content of the name, and then the bearer of the name. And the lead up... To some degree, I've already told you. But you just think about it this way. The, when I say the books of Moses, those are the first five books. And that really was the, the wheelhouse of the Jewish people. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They knew this book. And if, if, if you only had one book of the Bible, to, and it was Exodus, what would you know about God? You would know that He's unbelievable. I mean, here's what you'd know. When these people were enslaved, Israelites, by by the superpower of the world, the global superpower at that point was Egypt. When they were enslaved, and it was so awful that when they refer back to it in the rest of the Old Testament, they they call it an iron melting furnace. I'm not sure totally what that means, but it sounds really bad. Hundreds of years in that experience, no rights as slaves. When they could not rescue themselves, Exodus starts out and says that God heard their cries and his heart went out to them. And so he he raises up a leader. The leader tells the Pharaoh, let my people go, knowing that Pharaoh is not. And so God starts sending these divine manifestations, these plagues. And he singles out the Egyptians and makes a distinction between them and the Israelites. The Israelites don't experience the plagues in the same land and the Egyptians do and they escalate and they escalate until the final one is so bad that Pharaoh lets the Israelites go God brings them out when they could not save themselves the Egyptian army Egypt changes their mind goes after them with this global superpower army God delivers them and destroys the army and he manifests himself in the wilderness pillar of fire at night warmth you know deserts, wilderness cold at night warmth light Pillar of cloud by day, the divine presence. Parts the Red Sea for them to go through. Unparts the Red Sea to destroy the Egyptian army. They're in the wilderness. Army's destroyed. Provides them food, uh, quail, manna. This God loves them. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He speaks audibly to them, which scares them to death. But what He says to them is, You're my treasured possession." You're going to be a whole nation. You're going to be a kingdom of priests to me. You'll be my special people. If all you knew about God was just from the book of Exodus, just that story, you'd say, this is like a best case scenario for a deity. Just total power, total commitment, like total dominant power and total love and fidelity. Best case scenario. So, how do the Israelites respond to that? They love him, and they fear him, and they always obey him. I mean, if he can make bread fall from the sky, they're going to obey him. How does it go? How does does it go in Exodus? Rescue, Red Sea, Pillar of Fire, rescue from the army, Red Sea, Mount Sinai, you'll be my treasure possession, here's manna, here's quail. Uh, They craft a false god when Moses has been up on Sinai a little too long, and... um, Aaron, Moses' brother, says, referring to the golden calf, here are your gods, O Israel, who delivered you from Egypt. And they wake up early in the morning to just love it and bow to it and drink and feast and play. Massive betrayal. Now... How does God respond to it first? Now, under the passage here in the bulletin, I've got some others in italics. This is from the chapter right before, just to kind of give you some context. How does God respond to the betrayal? Look at that first one, 33, 3, right under our passage. God says, on the heels of that, speaking to Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Meaning what? Go into the promised land. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So, he's saying at least two things. Number one, go ahead. We're still on plan A. The plan is that my people inherit the promised land. That plan is still in place. And with that, I will not be in the midst of you anymore. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, you won't see that anymore. I'll send my angel ahead of you, and when you get into these battles to to conquer the promised land... My angel will go with you, but I will not be in your midst anymore because this is so offensive that if I stay in your midst, I will destroy you. That's God's response. Then what is Moses' response? Uh, It's actually a very short verse. I don't have the verse divisions there, but it's just this first sentence right below that. Moses said, please show me your glory. And the thing you got to remember when you study a passage of the Bible, I mean, whether this is Moses or whether it's that angel coming to Mary that we'll be hearing about, you always have to remember they've never read these stories. Moses and Mary did not go to vacation Bible school. They do not know how these stories turn out. I mean, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, was called in this thing he never thought he'd be called into, He sees this amazing delivery and rescue. It's the greatest salvation thing that happens in the Old Testament. But now he's just seeing craziness, buffoonery. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He doesn't know if he'll get to go in the promised land or not. Will he get killed? Will he die of natural causes? Will he get to walk in? And he's looking and he says what I think any of us would have said in that situation. God, just... Show me yourself. Like, visibly show me yourself. Now, this is, this is really interesting. Because Moses asks for something visible. Show me. What's God's response? And look at the next two verses. Still in the italics down there. At the end, he says, God says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In other words, strictly speaking, if I do what you're asking me to do, it will kill you. And that's sort of a sobering, humbling thing to hear because something that we talk about, you know, like sometimes sing about in worship is show me your glory, show us yourself, God. Well, you know, God is saying to someone here, well, if I did that face to face, you would die. If you saw my face. But think, it's as if God says, okay, I I hear what you're asking for what you want, but I'm going to give you what you need. Here's what you need. Look at the verse right before it. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. And if you read the whole story, he says, I'll let you see my back. I'll put you in a rock when I pass by. You won't see my face. But when I go by, the main thing I'm going to do is not so much a display. It's I'm going to tell you my name. Moses is asking for something sight-based. And God says, what I'm going to give you is something word-based. Now, think about it this way. Think about, like, when a child is convinced that he or she knows what she needs. Like, what I most need is to watch this movie right now. What I most need is a Coke right before I go to bed. And you know the parent or the babysitter, as the older person knows, what, actually what you need is 10 hours of unbroken sleep. If you would sleep for 10 hours, the shalom in our house would increase exponentially. And if you drink a Coke, it will plummet. You know, the parent knows. The authority figure knows. The child feels the need for it. But they're asking for the wrong thing. God, like a parent, sees Moses' distress, and God is upset, but he knows what he needs. What do you need? You need my name. Now, you talk about counterintuitive. You think about, like, if I'm unemployed, what is the main thing I need? If my marriage is unhappy, what is the main thing I need? Uh, If someone cheats me in business, what is the main thing I need? And in God's economy, the answer is, me. My name is me. God's name, in English translations, is all caps, Lord, the Lord. When you see it in all caps, that is His personal name, Yahweh. Almost untranslatable. I am that I am. And He's the only one who can use the name. The only one who can say, I am all that God is, is God. What do I need right now? What do I most need? Well, I feel like I need a job or a happier marriage or more finances or, you know, this trial to get the right, whatever. God says, you need my name. All right, so what's the content of the name? He says, I'm going to proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So... Moses goes up early in the morning. By the way, that's an interesting little detail because it parallels what they did with the golden calf. It said they got up. They were so fired up about the golden calf, they got up early to worship it. Started parting early. In a parallel way, Moses gets up early in the morning, goes back up Sinai with the new stone tablets. And what does it say? Verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud And stood with him there. And that's interesting. The text speaks both in terms of him passing by and him standing there. The Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, what is the name of the Lord? Not to beat this to death. Remember the context. Massive betrayal massive disobedience. If you have ever felt like, God, I just feel like if you would write in the sky, it's going to be okay, Robert, you know, if you would just do that, I would have so much more faith. He did stuff like that in front of them. And they rebelled. So on the heels of that, when God says His name, what does He say? Does He say, the Lord, the Lord angry. The Lord The Lord betrayed. What he says is simultaneously best case scenario for disobedient people and worst case. Simultaneously, it's both. Now, what's what's the best case? Now, here's where I'm so tempted, I want to drill down and I want to just define all the words and tell you about the Hebrew as a little bit, I know... And we can't. So, broad brush. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. So think Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Unbelievable. And here's the thing. Um, Some Old Testament scholars would say that may be the most important verse in the Hebrew Bible because it is echoed over and over and over in the rest of the Old Testament. It's in the historic books. It's in the Psalms multiple times. It's in the prophets. Slow to anger. Gracious. Merciful. Abounding in love. Compassionate. It says it over and over. And over. I'll give you one famous example. We could give a bunch. But, but a famous one, the prophet Jonah, the guy that got swallowed by the whale. Do you, know that, you remember that story? When he got swallowed by the whale because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, the bad city, with the bad people and tell them about God. So he runs from Nineveh, gets swallowed by a whale, whale. vomits him. He kind of takes stock of his life, goes to Nineveh. And he goes in and he doesn't really even give him any good news. He just says, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. Thank you. And uh, the people repent and God relents from sending this disaster. Well, Jonah doesn't know that. He goes up on a hill to watch this thermonuclear strike on Nineveh that he wants to watch. So he's sitting there ready to watch it and God relents. And he gets angry. And God says, do you have any right to be angry about that? And Jonah says, I do. Because I knew that you were gracious and merciful and slow. He's quoting Exodus 34. I knew you would haul off and do this instead of melting them like I wanted you to. Very familiar. The Pharisees, 100% certain, would know that story and would know that that wording uh, well best case scenario for disobedient people. What's my name? Merciful, gracious, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. And then seamlessly it's worst case scenario. Look in the rest of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the Father's Uh, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is, to me, one of the most fascinating themes in the Bible. And and I, I, I bring it up a lot in here because I see it a lot. Is what we could just call the both and of God. The both and nature of God. It's so hard for us to see how could you be both those? How can you say, I'll forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, and I will not clear the guilty? How can those both be in one person? And God says, That's my name. I mean, think about in your own life how hard it is to keep those kind of impulses just inside of inside of you. Man, if anything ran that through an amplifier recently, it was people's responses to Ferguson, Missouri. I mean, what did you hear? You heard some people, and, and immediately the scales crashed to the justice side. But even that's going to look different with different people because they run it through different experience. You know, how can you say there wasn't justice done there? Did you not hear the prosecutor explain that long, arduous process? Did you not hear that they all heard the same data? And that it was examined at the local level and the regional and the national level? Did you not hear that this grand jury had, wasn't just comprised of one race? Didn't you hear that? Justice was served. And you've got some people looking at the same saying, no, this is about justice and justice was not served. Or you've got some people looking at it saying, well, look, can you not see the bigger context of this thing? Can you not see that this thing touches on a massive exposed nerve in our culture. This is not so much a legal matter. This is a love matter. Well, they, okay, yeah. Then how are you going to execute that love? When you say love, what will it look like in action? What do you mean by that? It is so hard to keep all this straight inside of one person. And God says, all this is my name. You think the thing you most need for me to do is to like do a supernova in the sky so you'll know that I'm really powerful? What you need to know is my name. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin and I will not clear the guilty. I am the Lord. What do you do with both of those? That he would say that that is his name. And and that leads to the third point, the bearer of the name. The bearer of the name. Now, who is, who is the bearer of the name? The, the easy answer is, it's God. It's the Lord. But think about this. Uh, think about two things in our passage. Number one, God said when he was so upset, I'm, I will not be in your midst anymore. We're still on plan A, promised land, go in, milk and honey, but I'm going to send my angel, if I'm in the midst of you anymore, I will destroy you. What's Moses' final request? Look in verse verse 9. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. Now, I, I know that just sitting here in Greenville thousands of years later, we can't know exactly what he thought and what he felt. But what would you think that he thought? When he says, please, please don't ever stop being in our midst, what would that mean to him? It would mean something along the lines of, Lord, whether it's the pillar, fire, pillar of cloud, or whether it's when we get this tabernacle built, you being in the Holy of Holies, just please don't ever stop doing that. But what could Moses not have imagined? That the Lord, Yahweh, who descended in the cloud, and stood by Him, stood with Him, that Yahweh was going to come into the midst of the Israelite community as an Israelite. That He wasn't going to be in their midst, ultimately, through the Holy of Holies, or through a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. He was going to become an Israelite man. And think about this. In the Gospel of John, as you're watching the tensions escalate between Jesus and not just the Jewish community, but Jewish leaders especially, scribes, priests, Pharisees. In John chapter 8, there's a point where Jesus says, you know, Abraham anticipated seeing my day. And he did see my day, and he was very glad about it. And of course... You know, these Jewish leaders just, I'm sure, look at each other and go, you, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. Now, Abraham, he's before Moses. I mean, Abraham is the man. You're not yet 50, and you've seen Abraham. You're, if you know the story, do you know what Jesus' reply was? Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if Jesus had said, before Abraham was, I had already been living, they probably would have walked away and just kind of said, cuckoo, that's crazy. But that's not what he said. When he said, before Abraham was, he used the divine name about himself. That Jesus was saying, I am the man in my being. Who can forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin? And I do not clear the guilty. What is the ultimate demonstration of that? You know, I said I wish I could just drill down and talk about all this cool Hebrew stuff going on here. Can I say one thing about the Hebrew language in this passage? The verb that's used for forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin—the verb "forgive" is the Hebrew verb for "lift." And think about what God is saying. I can lift iniquity, transgression, and sin from my people. I can lift it from you, but I can't clear it. In other words, I can't just say, ah, let's just forget about that. Once I have lifted it, it has to go somewhere. Where does it go? On this one Israelite. And I don't clear him. And on him falls my anger, and on him falls the wrath that my people, past, present, and future, richly deserve. It falls on him. And here's the thing. When, when Moses, Moses had seen God do big, splashy stuff, but when he heard God say his name up close, what was Moses' response? Verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When This is all through the history of God's people. When people have been touched by God's mercy, so that He lets them see, and I'm not so much talking about by sight as by faith, by word. When He lets them see that it's in Jesus Christ, that the severity of God and the great compassion of God meet and find their fulfillment. It causes people to worship. And here's the question I want to ask of us now. You know, I was talking to Jake about this before the sermon that there was this infamous professor at the seminary where we attended and he had passed away before Jake or I went there. But uh, the chapel at Covenant Seminary is named after this man. And as the story goes, Tales of Yore, um, he used to tell his young, you know, his young uh, pastor wannabes, he would say, listen, when you get out there and you're preaching, I want you to see me on the back row. And I'm, I've got my arms crossed. And I'm looking at you and I'm saying, so what? Kind of like y'all do to me. So, so what? So, the justice of God and the mercy of God come crashing together, not just in the person of Jesus Christ, but His work on the cross. So what? When Moses saw that crash, what did he do? Wham! Worship. Immediately, right then. And I, here's the question I would ask, you know, on the front cusp of Advent. Do you worship Jesus? Jesus. I'm asking a different question than do you believe in Jesus? But do you worship Him? And I, I don't want to make this unnecessarily you know, ominous, but for, people, for grown-ups to get together and sing probably multiple times over the next month, come let us adore Him, come let us adore Him, come let us adore Him, and then not, in your real experience, adore Him, like verbally, verbally, emotionally, with your schedule, with what you say yes and no to, with what you do with silence, with stepping away from social media, not because it's inherently wicked, but because it is just omnipresent and it will go in whatever crevice you let it go in. To step away from it and to adore Him and worship Him. If we sing that over and over and we never do it, that's a way to harden our hearts. It's not like a five-year-old. A five-year-old doesn't have the same sensibilities. But when you do that as a 25-year-old and a 45-year-old, that hardens our hearts. But, here, but I don't want to just say, hey, so we need to do that. But here's the thing. Paul says in the New Testament, when you worship Jesus, this amazing thing happens. He just, just looking at Him in His Word and by faith, whether it's worship together or by yourself, transforms you. You know how you'll know that you're being transformed? Is when you start to love what God loves and you hate what God, God hates. That you're severe with sin. But here's the trick. That your severity with sin is not aimed at somebody else's. I mean, are you tired in your life of always being hacked off at, fill in the blank, liberals, Right wingers. Whoever, are you tired of that? Because I guarantee, if you're not tired of it, the people who live with you are tired of it. What is the only thing that really changes the heart? Is it just the executive decision? Well, I'm going to be a nicer person in 2015. Well, I don't know. What transforms you is to get angry at your own sin. to see that sin is worth hating. Sin is worth being upset about. But the main sin to be upset about is our own. As a friend of mine said, hey, instead of running around quoting, hate the sin and love the sinner, how about hate your own sin? And go from there. To be upset by my own sin, but then to go to Christ and to see, man, He cannot just make that sin evaporate and just kind of go off into never-never land and never be dealt with. He can't clear the guilt of my own sin, but what He does is He lifts it off me. If I trust in Jesus Christ and it's on His Son and He doesn't clear it, He doesn't clear it, but I'm cleared. And I'm the recipient of the mercy and the compassion that's what changes human beings. Is not just to believe the gospel, but again and again to come to Him and to worship Him. The one who hung on a cross that is God's severity and is God's great mercy. Amen. Let's pray together. We ask, Father, that You would make of us, not just as individuals, but as a, as a local church, as a community, a community of people who um, don't just believe in Jesus, but adore Jesus. And Father, for, for many of us, this is kind of uncharted waters. We don't know how to go about doing that. Would you hold our hand through it? Lord Jesus Christ, what it is, not only in an assembly like this, but in the privacy of our home or an office or park to to speak to you and to reach for you in our insides and say, you are great, and you are God, and you are man, you are all that I'm not. Holy Spirit, would you work that in our hearts, even this Advent, and we ask it in your name. Amen.